Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of The Teacher's Point of View. Um, this week's episode we have Mark Beach, who's the headmaster at Sherbourne House School, uh, a private school in Goldenming. Um, and he talks about the challenges he's had, obviously, in his journey in teaching and his experience kind of being on the side of being a teacher and then kind of becoming a head teacher and the biggest challenges he had and how he's had to adapt over his tenure as a head teacher. And um, obviously, it's, it's a remarkable um, journey that he's been through and um, obviously uh, I'm so pleased he came on and shared it with us I hope you guys all enjoy and uh, if you do like it please give us a like and a subscribe at the end of the video thank you morning Mark um, I'm really pleased to have you and thank you for uh, coming on to the teachers point of view podcast um, obviously you've had a remarkable journey been in the profession for 30 years and um, like everyone else in the profession I'm sure you're a little bit um, like sort of you found this year very very difficult you know and um, just to kind of reiterate I wanted to create this podcast so teachers felt like they could have a voice and um, share their journey about where they got to and why the teaching profession is so crucial for our country you know and um, so I'd love for you to just kind of start off by giving a bit of uh, sort of about a little bit about you and your journey into teaching and kind of where you're at now really would that be would that be all right yeah absolutely so my my journey into teaching really um i mean when i left when i left school i was um i had a career i went into the city i worked uh, for midland bank um it i, I wasn't satisfied and um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, and there was uh, a school that needed some, some, some rugby coaching. I'd, I'd played rugby at a, at a particularly high level. So I got involved coaching children in, the, in, the, in this particular school at the weekends. Um, and it became, uh, I actually ended up being a teacher assistant there. And um, I loved it. And that for me was a real revelation. And I loved being in the school. I loved working with the children. And then I thought, I need to go to university. I need to get my qualifications. Um, and that's how I got into teaching. Um, I've been ahead now of, of four schools um, and four very different schools. Um, and I, I suppose my progression through, through through the ranks, you know, from from being from being a classroom teacher to head of department to being a member of SLT, that that was, uh, I think, fa fairly. It was a quick progression, but I had I worked with some remarkable heads, and I learned from I learned from them, um, and I felt you know what I, I really want to be on SLT. I want to be able to make a difference to the schools I work in. And I was fortunate to be able to, to be appointed as a head at the age of 35. Um, that was a steep learning curve. I always felt, and, you know, interestingly, I felt as a deputy, I knew exactly all the answers to, to, to everything. Um, but when I got to headship, I realized I didn't know any of the answers, really. Um, and I, I, know I, had to, I had to learn on, on the hoop of it. But it's, it's been a very rewarding job. And... Um, I, I, I would highly recommend it to anyone. I, I've loved my career. Yeah, I mean it, it's um, interesting you say that. We, when you get to headship, and like even for me, when I when I first 
when I was a consultant and then first became manager, I used to look at my managers before and I used to be like, oh, you don't know what you're doing. If I was a manager, I'd do this. Um, but when you when you actually like get there and you realise, you know what, there's so much more involved, isn't there? I mean, what was the biggest like um, thing for you that you, you were like taken back by that you didn't realise that it was involved in being a head teacher? Well, I think, I think as a deputy head, I saw things very much in black and white terms. There was a right and wrong way of doing things. When I, and I couldn't ever understand why my head chose to do a different, a, a different path from the one that I felt that he should have done. When I became a head, I realized actually there's quite a lot of gray, gray areas. There's a lot of different issues that impact upon a decision that you're going to make, whether it be the budget, whether it be staffing, whether it be a parental issue. There, it's a much bigger picture. And I, I think that that was the learning curve for me that was very steep to understand actually there's not simply a right or wrong answer here. There, there are sometimes multifaceted approaches to, to, to an issue. Um, and it's being able to, to, to take all of those considerations into account. I think, you know, my, my, my very first day of headship, walking into my office and then thinking, that perhaps I needed to have the answer for absolutely everything that was daunting. I now realize actually yeah, yeah, you, yeah, you have a very good staff around you who can provide you with lots of the answers and support that you needed. But it can be a lonely job. Lonely job. Did you find that because what, once you became a head teacher, you felt like everybody kind of distanced or there was that level of I'm on this side of the table, you're on that side of the table? I think... I think actually that's a, that's a journey which, is, which has changed for me. I think when I first became a head, well, first I have to say, actually, there is not, I think we could train our SLT colleagues more um, in, 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 in perhaps readiness for that transition to, to, to headship. I don't think there's really the structures there that, um, that prepare you fully for the role at the, at the top. Um, but I think the, when, I first became a, when I first became a head, I think for me, um, it felt very lonely because I felt that there was, now once I was the other side of the desk, I, I, you know, I had to be distant from my staff. Um, I had to know every single answer. I had to be seen as the expert on every single area. I think through 17 years of headship, my style of leadership has changed. I'm now far more um, willing, I want to empower the staff that work for me. Um, and trusting my staff, actually, that, that's a really important key, to trust my senior leaders, to trust, to trust my middle managers, because they're all professionals, and actually they do the job brilliantly. And for me to actually say to them, well, look, you know, I trust you to, you know, to implement this, can you do this for me? They feel recognized, and actually it takes, um, it empowers them, but also, takes the burden off you trying to do every single role yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this this word trust comes up quite a lot, actually, um, because there is this level of um, 
a lack of trust in the, in the profession in some respects. Obviously, they obviously come into schools and they, they kind of obviously inspect to make sure that you're doing your job correctly. And this, this is constant that we've got to check, you know, like we, we're looking at people's stuff. And I think that that's one of the one of the reasons why retention problem is sometimes a problem within within schools because teachers feel unappreciated or undervalued by their, their obviously their obviously anyone above them, you know? Um, I mean, like there's probably had teachers that are listening to this and thinking, well, I trust my staff. I mean, like, obviously I trust my staff, but what, what do you mean by that? Because it's, it's, it's a bit more deep, like thorough than that, isn't it? It's, it's a little bit more deeper than that. You, you, you can't just say, well, I trust them, but then you're on their case. I mean, what do you actually mean about what kind of trusting them and letting them get on with it? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. I think it's, um, for me, if I have a member of staff who has a really good idea, they come to me and they say, you know, Mark, I'd really like to try this out. My response invariably will be, give it a go. Let's see what happens. You know, if, if it doesn't go quite to plan, well, at least we tried it. I think it's giving, it's giving my staff the safe space to try new things. I'm not going to be micromanaging them i'm not going to be on their case all of the time and they know that and therefore because they know that i'm not micromanaging them because i allow them to take the risks within the classroom or implementing a new a new thing of course this is something that we encourage our own children to do take risks within the classroom to have a go that's what i want from my teachers and because they they realise that I'm not going to be, um, you know, balling them out if they get it wrong. That's where the trust. That's where the trust is. Mm-hmm. Because they can say, right, I want to try this. I know you're going to allow me to do it. Let's see how it goes. If it goes brilliantly, fantastic. If it doesn't go that well, well, what have we learned from it, and what can we do in the future to make sure it goes right? And I think it. I think that's what I mean by trust. Yeah, I, I think, you know what, you've raised some really good points. And it's, I, I mean, I don't know how if how you feel about answering this. And if you feel I'm a bit uncomfortable, that's absolutely fine. But I, I feel there's, there's this big lack of trust from, obviously, the government in the way that the education system runs, you know. And if we operate and, and adopt what you've just said in the way that you kind of structure your senior leadership, should we not have the same sort of level of trust between your employers and, and the teaching profession in some respects um, because you, they don't trust you. I mean, you got upset to come in and you, ISI and you, you obviously getting constantly observed or, you know, like, I mean, there's, there's a lot of pressure on you not to, I mean, they should just let you get on with your job. You're the specialist, right? I mean. Well, I think there needs, I think that to a certain extent, there needs to be quality control. Um, and actually I, um, and this may sound, this may sound odd, but I rather like ISI coming in because I feel that um, in terms of constructive criticism uh, and being a critical friend, they, they're, 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 they have been very good. I found them to be very good. Um, I, think, I think trust in terms of government um, I mean, we've seen, we, you know, we see, we've seen with, with the public exams at the end of um, uh, last summer's, summer's public exams, how reluctant the government were in terms of allowing, you know, centre-assessed grades. Um, 
and there seemed to me a bit of um, a, a, a discord between between the government saying, well, we trust the teachers to give the grades. I think that could have been handled better. I think in terms of trust as a profession, um, if you look at other countries, maybe Australia, if you, you know, um, Finland, there is an awful lot of trust in their teachers. Um, I think the government here could actually work harder at building that trust with the profession um, because if they value teachers, they valued schools, if um, uh, then the profession as a whole would be would be valued. Absolutely. I mean, sorry. No, go for it. Go for it. So I think, yeah, there's work to be done in, 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 in that. And I think um, um, over the course of the 30 years that I've uh, been in the profession, I think that trust has eroded. What, so, what, what, why do you think that is? Like, what's, what do you think has been like the, the crucial change over the years to, to sort of minimise this trust? Um, I, oh, a good question. I think the, the um, league tables, the adoption of the league tables was one area where um, uh, th that this constant comparison that we have now between schools and how they're performing um, has really changed the slant uh, and the emphasis on the on on the profession because we have to jump through so many hoops. And I think you know we're constantly comparing ourselves with. You know, particularly in the secondary sector, constantly comparing ourselves with um, with our with our competitor schools, how well we're performing, where we are on that on that league table, and therefore that for me um, hasn't been a hasn't been a positive a positive step forward. Well, well, a lot of senior leaders that I've spoken to have said that they should scrap the leaderboards completely. Like, they, they disagree with the fact that, I mean, they, they don't understand how you can compare people from inner city London schools to schools in the suburbs or in the rural areas of, of the UK. I mean, and you're kind of sitting them with the same criteria, you know? I mean, do they need to be scrapped? I, 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 I think so. I mean, I, I, there used to be a case you know, in the independent sector, let's just go to, if we, if we just look at the independent sector, for example, there used to be a case where there was a school for every child. Now, if you look at um, uh, the uh, independent sector in terms of uh, London day schools, um, they're all striving to be top of the league tables. So if you have a child who is, who is uh, you know, middle of the road, they are going to struggle to get into one of those schools. Okay, so there is not a school for every child. And I think, again, coming to your point, you cannot compare children who go to inner city, you know, inner city um, schools, inner city to, to, to those schools out, out in the rural areas. It's just not comparing like for like at all. So, yeah, I, I you know, would say I don't agree with the league tables. 
I don't think it's done the done the education um, uh, sector any good at all. It's insane. And I think it's quite a general feeling throughout the profession, actually. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous because they don't have anyone in, in power that has actually been in the classroom, you know. So they, they kind of they don't actually have the expertise to kind of make certain decisions. And um, they don't really know what's best for your kids and what's best for your school and your your community, you know. And that's what you're part of, aren't you? You're part of a big community. Um, and with, with a lot of parents, with the children, your staff, your, 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 obviously yourself. And um, it's you you kind of obviously you would know what's best for your, your your children not somebody that's sitting in central london like sort of sitting behind the desk right um do we need to adopt more of a like an australia philosophy where where they sort of put more trust in their teachers and, and kind of come in and and see what they're doing and looking at the child progress because i was speaking to gavin mccormack and what they do over there is um they, they give them freedom to teach the curriculum as they want. They, they tell them what they expect to learn, but it's up to the, the teachers to decide how to get the best out of them. And to the point where Gavin doesn't actually use any like um, sort of multimedia boards. He does it all like through activities and like kind of actually real life stuff. Uh, and he finds that that has actually created a lot of success stories as well. Like he's had stuff that have uh, children that have turned into lawyers and stuff, you know? So, I mean, it, it clearly does work that way. Yeah, so I, yeah, I follow uh, Gavin McCormack actually, um, and he he's really he's very innovative. I think, but but you know the point that he's he's making actually is is a valid one that he has the freedom to um, uh, create a curriculum without the constraints of the government telling him the prescriptive constraints of of, of government doctrine. Um, and I think that is why you will see, you know, probably within the, over here, we have the independent sector and the state sector. In the independent sector, particularly in primary, we have an awful lot of freedom to, to take what's best from government practice and also put in our own practice the things that we think are, are best for the children. And I know that we're in a privileged position to be able to do that. Um, but we can, um, you know, this whole idea of, of um, having a prescriptive curriculum, it doesn't suit every child. Absolutely. You need to have the freedom to be able to, to devise a curriculum that, that is um, engaging and exciting and caters for the individual. As educators, your, your job is to set these kids up for life. And even like Gavin, when I was speaking to him earlier this, today, and he, he was sort of mentioning, well, like you, you got to help the kid find its niche, you know, like you, you, I mean, that's your job as educators to like help them be as successful as they can potentially be. And it's about helping them find that niche. I mean, if it's not maths, but it's just about le- helping them learn in the best way possible to them. And if you're following a curriculum that's generalized to the whole public, like how can you get the best out of these children? You have to work harder on differentiation. Yes. But I mean, you, you're not allowed the freedom to actually design, like work in, in your own way and, you, in, and do what's best for these kids. Do you know what I mean? I completely agree. I think you know you're right. For us, it's not it's not about um, simply about preparation for their next step in education or for the exams they're going to pass. Which you know, both of those are important. We're also preparing them for life beyond school uh, and into the into the world of work. And it's being able to. Give them good strategies that they're going to use 
beyond school, but also it's, it's providing an education that drips those little bits of inspiration and opportunity that you see child, a child thinking, wow, that's something I want to explore further. And then, and then having the, the passion and desire to do that, as well as the support from the school to allow them to do that. Because you never know where that little path is going to take them. And that, that, is, that is hugely important. Absolutely. And just to kind of obviously touch base on, on what you said a little bit earlier, just about um, you, in the private sector, you get a little bit more freedom at primary school. I mean, obviously, if anyone, any teacher that's watching this it, from the public sector, I mean, they, they can probably feel a little bit of frustration from that because if it, it, it almost feels like the public sector teachers aren't trusted, I mean, that's what they'll probably take from that, you know, compared to the private sector teachers. But the, for some of these teachers, like, like and I've spoken to a lot of them over the last six years, they, they would actually, like, they want to really work with these disadvantaged children to go, like, to make a difference, you know, and, and they actually go above and beyond. So, like, in their head, they're probably thinking, well, you know what, you guys have probably got it a little bit easier compared to them. And why aren't they trusted more to do, be able to do what's best for their kids, you know? Because a lot of what they'll also say is a lot of people in power will probably come from privileged backgrounds. So how are they able to decide what's best for these disadvantaged children that they work with day in, day out? Yeah, that's, I mean, that, that is a good point. And I do recognise that, um, you know, from, from the side of the fence that I'm talking from, that we are very lucky to be able to, um, to, to, to create, to have the freedom, particularly in primary, it's less so in secondary, where, you, where they're following GCSE and A-level, um, A-level syllabuses. But in primary, we, we, we certainly have that freedom. Um, Look, I don't want to diminish the, the, the excellent work that my colleagues do within the state sector because it is, it is completely outstanding. And um, I have, you know, lots of um, praise for them. I think in terms of the, the freedom within the curriculum, and it is about trust. I think it absolutely is about trust. It's it's the government, um, whoever that whoever the you know the government is at the time, saying actually, you know, this is broadly what we need to be covered, but we're going to allow you to cover it in the way that you see fit, you know, and we trust you and your expertise and the training that you've had to deliver a fantastic curriculum. That's where we talk about trust. That's 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 what that's the dialogue that government needs to have with the profession, and it needs to put that trust back into the profession. Because as you quite rightly alluded to, there are lots of lots of professionals who are leaving this profession because they don't feel trusted, and I, it's a it's a it's a it's a crying shame that that is the case because we need the profession you know and it is you're absolutely right it's a shame because we do need the profession and we need to, i mean ultimately we, we need to do something now you know and i think this podcast is uh, hopefully it's it's something that's going to help you know because it, it's about creating the awareness for what teachers are doing at the moment and how important the profession is and like, like we said it earlier in other countries it's valued as one of the most prestigious like professions you know like equivalent to doctors and and so forth but in with 
hair, over hair it's, it's not it's, it's not valued and that's because almost it comes from the government doesn't it and it like we I almost feel like we as a profession would need to stand up and, and say you know what enough's enough like we, we need to take control of the curriculum back we know what's best for our kids and ultimately like you could tell us what you need us to teach like you said we, but we're going to do it in our way for what's best for our kids I mean how far are we from being able to reach that point um I think we're some way off from being able to reach that point. Yeah. And what, what do we need to do to make that happen? Well, I, I, I think there needs to be... The, the, what I, I'll come to that point in just a second. I, it's just occurred to me that I don't want to give the impression, you know, that anyone who's watching this podcast, that teaching is... Um, because we want people to come into teaching. I mean, it is a fantastic job, you know, and it's hugely rewarding. You know, for whatever frustrations there are, actually, those frustrations are outweighed by seeing children, you know, really fulfilling their potential and and um, moving, you know, from one goal to another. It is, it is fantastic to see that. Um, and you won't get a better job. But I think in terms of where we move forward and, and the government allow us the, the freedom to do the things that we want to do, there needs to be a better dialogue, particularly between education, educational leaders and government itself. And I think perhaps at the moment, there are just too many voices, whether it be the, um, the unions, whether it be the different teaching organisations, all trying to have their say, all have got different views. We, we need one voice, really, to represent the teaching profession with government. And at the moment, we haven't got that. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, you're not the first person to say that. Phil Sherrick said that to me a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if you saw his podcast last Friday, but um, he, he was saying something similar. I think there's there's so many voices in different unions, and the, the politicians almost play the unions like puppets because they can just get them, to, they can do whatever they want because the unions agree them in themselves, you know. Um, and it's very interesting you say that. I mean, but who's going to step up? You know, I know obviously Alison Peacock has has started the Chartered College of Teaching, and she's doing a fantastic job. I know that. 40,000 members but they're obviously it's still a long way to go you know and but I mean we, we do need to retain staff like recruitment re retention is a massive massive problem in the industry and this year is probably going to make it that much harder you know um, because it kind of this year has made it more apparent the, the frustration I mean teachers have felt undervalued and underappreciated before but this year extra and, and it was more difficult before with the data, data um, sort of input they have to put, they, the sort of meeting the curriculum needs and the changing of the curriculum. I mean, they've changed the pupil progress and there's so many changes constantly happening and legislation that the, the teachers, the teacher profession has to adapt to. And I mean, you, you do some long hours at times, you know, and it, it's a vocation, isn't it? Like it, it's a full on commitment, you know, and. It is a full on commitment. It is, it is, uh, yeah, definitely. It is a, it is a, a lifestyle that you choose to to to, to follow, rather than it's it's not a job; it's a vocation. It, it, it's a lifestyle, and it's a, it. But it's a very rewarding lifestyle, you know. And um, I I would happily encourage anybody to 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 
to, to at least have a look at the teaching profession before ruling it out, you know, because um, it, it, it is a great career. I mean, you make a difference to children every single day, don't you? And, and that's the thing. And like I said, sort of a little bit earlier in, in some of my other podcasts, it's yeah you give them um you sort of help them learn but for some of these kids it's a safe place it's where they get love it's where their friends are and it's where you know like it's it's a, it's a safe place for them you know and like you're there to be there for them to nurture them and care for them every single day and these are the future of our economy you know like these are future doctors and, and teachers and lawyers you know and um i mean you do an amazing job and it's about making a difference to these kids and i hope people get into teaching for that reason and not for the holidays and stuff you know because you do make a massive difference yeah i think i think that 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 is um i think um it used to really frustrate me when um when uh, you know parents would say oh you know you you only go into teaching because of because of the holidays I mean that that that's that's not true at all. You know, many many of us are working throughout the holidays. You know, it is it, it, that's what you 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 just have to do that. But I think in terms of that safe place that you described uh, schools being, I mean that was never more noticeable than at the end of lockdown when children started coming back into schools. How they actually skipped into school. They wanted to be back in their environment seeing friends, seeing their teachers, being back into the, as you said, the safe place of the school environment. And I think that, you know, particularly for my staff, it, it was, wow, yeah, our children, they really appreciate being in school. Absolutely. I mean, just talking about the last eight months, how, how much did COVID impact some of the families that you obviously have at the school? Yeah, so I have, um, um, where I'm based, many of my um, families, the parents work at, at Southampton Hospital. Um, so we, we have a large proportion of, of medical families here, here in school. So um, COVID impacted them directly. They were, they were pulling you know, long hours, very difficult shifts, seeing um, intensive care, unit being full um, and it was a it was a worrying time we remained open throughout uh, the Easter holidays throughout the summer for our key worker children um, and I, I think for me talking to some of the parents that are coming to collect their children they were you know they were shattered I, 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 the, the work they were doing was was unbelievable and um, I was just pleased that we could do something to support them by keeping the school open. Absolutely. I mean, it, was, it must have been a really difficult time. So was that majority of the, the children's parents were kind of working in the hospital? Yeah, so we had, so um, uh, I had between 40 and 60 key worker children in um, throughout the, throughout the, the, the week depending on, on the shifts of the, of the parents. Yeah. So it was, um, it, 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 a lot, a lot of our parents were involved in, in that, um, frontline care. And, and like, just when, when obviously we went into lockdown, like how, how did you find adapting to sort of the online teaching and how difficult has it been over the course of this year for you? Yeah. That's a, that's a really good point. I think, um, 
um, I had a I had a plan for um, for my online teaching and online provision, which you know before before the pandemic, before coronavirus is even mentioned, we were thinking we were going to wheel out this plan over a period of four years. Um, uh, we actually did it within ten days. So it, it just goes to show you what can be done when there's a bit of pressure, well, a lot of pressure put on you to, to move to remote to remote teaching. So the first week of lockdown, um, we had we we uh, were, went straight into remote um, uh, learning. Um, at the probably into the second week, we then did a survey of parents to see whether the provision that we was we were providing was um, whether they were having problems with it, whether it was enough, whether it wasn't enough. Um, and with the feedback from the parents, we adapted our provision uh, to take us through into the into the summer term. Largely, you know, one of the things that parents wanted was less screen time. So we did all our live lessons in the morning, and then in the afternoon, we said the children were um, were working on a time capsule project, um, uh, which they did in the afternoons. But we had um, my form tutors, was I was particularly concerned about the pastoral care. Um, so I, I wanted my form tutors to touch base with, with every child first thing in the morning and last, last thing in the afternoon just so that we could keep an eye on what was happening and that pastoral care was, was being provided. Without a doubt, some of our children really thrived on the, with the remote learning. Um, others found it less, less good. Yeah, I mean, how did you find kind of meeting the curriculum needs like and sort of over this period? And like, how far do you think you are behind of where they need to be? Yeah, interesting, that's a, that's a really good point. So we, we've looked at um, uh, what they covered during the, um, during the lockdown. Um, we've uh, assessed what they've done. Um, and largely, actually, we um, are on, still on course. We haven't really slipped back at all. And I think that's because um, we made our expectations very clear from the outset and we kept in touch with our pupils all the way through and with their parents. So there was regular um, Zoom meetings with parents. Um, we still did all our parents' evenings. But, and with, you know, there, there, there have been some, you know, a small minority of children, as I said, who didn't really cope well with the online learning, who have slipped back. But we've been able to give them some, some support this term to bring them back up to up to where we want them to be, but I can you know you know say confidently that we've not seen a huge slip back at all. Fantastic! It's it's nice to hear. Obviously, you, you've obviously kept your kids up to track. I mean, there's a lot of schools out there that haven't. You know, I mean, I've spoken to so many senior leaders, and obviously, some of their kids even have laptops and didn't have access to Wi-Fi. You know, and uh, and it's been it's been a really really difficult situation. And you know, and this again, I know we, we've spoken about this already, but we it's all going back to my point earlier about kind of how you can examine 
like children that have had obviously the access to Wi-Fi and, and still are caught up with the curriculum like that you you have at your school, and then you've got kids that haven't had access to Wi-Fi over this last seven eight months. They've it's been very limited how much they can learn. Obviously, they've had probably had to self isolate a few times, or they haven't had the teacher in. And we're comparing children across the country in a generalized way. I mean, it just it it, it blows my mind because I just don't see how that system can work. No, I think, I think um, moving forward for these for the for the exams that uh, children are going to sit, particularly you know the GCSEs A level exams this time round, um, I think that needs to be looked at. You know what? You know how is that going to be fair for 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 some of our pupils who have slipped back, who who have not had that that remote learning. Who perhaps had to have had to self isolate, um, particularly when you look at Wales, who have already decided they're not going to do public exams. Scotland have already decided they're not going to do public exams, and yet in England we're still doing public. You know, we're still going to follow those those exams. So again, you know, is that fair? I don't know. I think that needs to be looked at. Um, I think, um, you know, I certainly know. Pupils who are in who are in the secondary sector who are doing GCSEs this year, who have been because of COVID, have only had an, one or two weeks at school because largely they've had to be, been sent home time after time because of infections within the school. So they've not even had that that face to face teaching with with the teacher, and they've got GCSEs just around the corner. So it's not fair. It needs yeah. to be looked at, and it seems to me that the government aren't addressing that, aren't addressing this point. And it goes back to my question earlier: Is it because they don't have somebody that's a specialist within in Parliament that can advise on how education should be run? Because is it because of the lack of experience they've got within the education industry to that that's kind of been a mind block of, of what should be done? Well, I think I think firstly. There needs to be greater communication between the devolved governments, so that actually there is a consistent message being being given out. Because it seems to me at the moment to be a bit of point scoring, see who can get in first. You know, Scotland cancelling their exams, Wales cancelling their exams, and then England, then England following. So I think there needs to be greater communication between the devolved governments. I think actually. I mean, these are difficult circumstances that we're all in. And I think someone like Gavin Williamson needs to listen to the experts who are on the front line saying, look, just delaying the exams by three weeks isn't really good enough. You know, because it isn't. It isn't. Um, you know, I've got a daughter who's doing GCSEs this year. Um, will, you know, Delaying them by three weeks is not going to make up the work that she's missed, you know. Um, so it, it needs to rethink. But I fear, um, and this is probably, you know, quite controversial, but, but I'll say it anyway. I think what will happen is we will trundle along and then, you know, when it's too late to make any big difference, there will be an announcement from the government either saying we're going to go ahead, you know, we're going to change the exam format or we're not going to, we're going to go back to um, 
tend to assess grades, but it won't give the teachers enough time to, to respond. You know, all we're asking in, in the profession is, you know... A heads up. Give us the heads up. Exactly. <laughs> give us the heads up. Not, you know, with plenty of time, and we will deliver for you. Don't leave it to the last minute. Which it has been, hasn't it? Consistently, throughout this year. Consistently. U-turn after U-turn, you know, we get guidance, which is given to us too late. Um, and it, it, it's, just, it's, it's, it's just not good enough. And, and it's, not even, it's not even correct guidance most of the time, because it changes no. too clear. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not, exactly. And I, look, I recognise these are... The, 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 you know, and hindsight is a great thing. You know, we can all look back and think, oh, right, actually, we'd, we'd, have, we'd have done it better. No, no government has been through a, a crisis like this before. But I do think, you know, we could actually be more, the government could be more proactive in the advice that it gives, and it could be more timely advice. That's all I ask for. Absolutely. I, I, I mean, you've got to literally change, adapt to whole school. You're talking about up to 1,800, 2,000 kids at times, yeah. like within new, within new legislation overnight. I mean, I've heard of legislation coming out on a Friday night and you have to get it done over the weekend or yeah. like the, the day before half term, there was a new legislation that came out. They had to implement straight away or something like that. You know, I mean, it's, it's bonkers. Like you, you've got a school to run and, and these kids need stability and they need like sustainability and you know and it's about giving them that support I mean the, the schools in Australia only closed for two weeks this year you know yeah. And, yeah. and I mean what I, it's mental I think also the people writing the advice for the school are people who are not in schools you know so they don't understand how schools work I mean they're civil servants who probably you know the last time they were in school was when they were at school themselves so they're not, they're not, they're, they're writing advice. They need some professionals from the education to sit down with them and actually, well, actually, as schools operate like this, yeah. and therefore we need to tailor the advice so it works for a school. And this goes back to having that one voice, right? As in to, start, to, to call, sort of go in and say, no, this is what we need to do. And this is how we need to run our schools going forward. You know, I mean, and it goes back to like saying, well, how long is that going to take? The, the, the problem that we have in this country, unfortunately, is we leave it until it, we hit rock bottom. And then we try to react, right? Instead of being proactive, like you said, like we should have learned from the last like 12 months, like the last seven, eight months and realize, you know what? I mean, we, we haven't done it correctly. This is what we need to implement going forward to make sure that schools run effectively throughout this period. You know, I mean, like you said, you're literally consistently being given messages last minute. I mean, that needs to change, right? Yeah, it does. It does, it does need to change. Um, and, um, it was, well, as you, you know, we, we both said, you, you need to be proactive. You need to be thinking ahead that down the line, this is probably what it's going to look like. So let's start thinking about that now rather than leave it until May when we'll change all the, the parameters again for these, for these exams, for example. You know, it's just not good enough. How dangerous would it be for the government to announce the exams are cancelled for summer? Because for some kids, they'll just stop doing work, won't they? <laughs> Yeah, well, that is that 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 that. that I mean, that's that's a good point. Um, I think um, in terms of um, it, it's it's the way the message is sold. You know, if 
if the government cancel exams, there needs to be a different form of assessment. And perhaps that assessment needs to be going right up through until until June, you know, with, with children doing assessed work all the way through. And then in June and July, uh, the schools moderating that work and then generating a grade. You know, um, simply saying we're not going to do any more work from now, you know, until July and there won't be any exams, that would be a disaster. So everyone needs to understand. Pupils, staff, everyone's going to work through until May. And then we're going to be we're constantly moderating the work so we can generate a grade. Um, I think my worry is that if England stick to doing GCSEs and A-levels, and we've got Wales and Scotland who have decided to opt out, is that a fair playing system? Is that a fair system when, when it comes to university entry? Because you've got some children who haven't done exams, some who have done exams. So how does that compare? You're not comparing like for like again. So that's all I ask for, I don't mind what method they use, as long as it's always consistent across all, all, all Wales, Scotland, Ireland and England. Yeah, absolutely. And especially for these kids, like you said, they're doing A-levels now. They are going to university next year, you know, and even when they apply for jobs, that's, those grades are going to be looked at. So what happens if two people apply for a job that, and one's got A's and A-levels and one hasn't got any A-levels, you know? Exactly. That, 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 you know, so let's just have a, just have a, um, uh, a common policy for everybody. Why, why don't they have that? <laughs> <laughs> because, because I, I, oh, it's a really good question. I don't know the answer. I think it's because um, you know it, it's it, we've got these devolved governments who are not really communicating with each other, and it's all about point scoring. I mean, I'm not in education. Though. I find it very frustrating. I mean, I'm not in education, and I, some of the stuff that we've spoken about just seems so obvious to me. You know, like have someone in education that's been in education helping the education policies that are being made. I mean, that just sounds like an absolutely no-brainer. What is it a sense of pride, though? I mean, is it like secretary, every secretary of education has a lifespan of about two years, right? If you look at the last five that have come in, it's been about eighteen months to two years, hasn't it? I mean, it's it's just until they move on to something else. I mean, it, and, and most of the time, it's just sideways, isn't it? It's not even like they progress in their career; they just move sideways. I mean, is it is it is the is the actual position a bit of a placebo in in some respects? Are they actually doing any good for the for the education industry? I think that I think. Um I think one of the issues, and you make a good point, the education secretaries tend not to hang around for too long. I think for, for wide sweeping reform and change, you need someone in post for much longer than two years. Absolutely. And, and someone who is not just constantly thinking, right, well, I'm in this post, um, but really what I'm looking forward to is to move up to the next, the next job. You need someone who is committed to the role Actually, I've got a passion for education and I'm going to make a real difference. And this is going to be my brief. And actually, you can't affect too much change over, over the course of, of uh, two years. It needs to be longer. You need someone who um, is happy to talk to the unions, who is happy to, to, be, to, to visit schools and to be involved and understand how schools work. Um, 
someone who is open-minded to all aspects of the sector, state and independent, and getting good practice from both the state and the independent, and recognizing that good practice and putting it to the fore. Um, but I don't think, you, you know, if, if, and it's probably longer term than just the five years. It, it, this needs to be something that needs to put in train for real deep seated reform that's going to take at least 10 years to put into place. And as you say, having an education secretary in post for two years is just not long enough. It's a massive problem. I mean, if people like when a when a government party comes into power, they have initial four years to try to like implement and, and show that they've made progress. To only make progress. I mean, they don't even reach the goals within four years usually. You know, um, and and you're talking about an education secretary that promises that they're going to do this for education and then leaves in like eighteen to twenty four months. I mean, it's it doesn't give any stability. Like if you were a head teacher for in a school for one to two years and then moved on for another and then into another school for two years, you'd almost look like a bit of a school hopper and you wouldn't be able to implement those strategies that you kind of need to make the school better you know and yeah, absolutely and any governors would, would frown upon potentially you you taking the job at your school so why is it any different for somebody that runs the whole education like system <laughs> well i mean i agree with you completely there's there's, there's no difference you know you, you, all i ask for an educational education secretary is someone who has a passion for education. Absolutely. You want to know that they want to make a difference. Yeah, and someone who's willing to understand how it works. You know, I, I don't mind, even if they haven't had any experience uh, of, ed, of education as a profession, but someone who is willing to learn, who's willing to sit down and talk to teachers and understand from, from the, the profession's point of view what needs to change absolutely until they do that if things just won't get better will they no they won't no there needs to be that that very productive dialogue yeah i mean you know what's going to make me what makes me laugh is that Obviously, I'm doing these podcasts. I mean, if I was Gavin Williamson, I'd be looking at these and be thinking, you know what, I'm going to take as much as I, as I can away from this and like, try to implement these strategies that will work. I mean, I might not agree with everything that has been said, but I'm going to do, take as much away from it as I can. But he probably won't even watch this because, I mean, he's been absent in the last year. You haven't seen him on social media. You haven't seen him anywhere, have you? No, no, not at all. No. <laughs> I think, he, yeah, you're right. He has been absent. Yeah. I mean, there's a crisis. Yeah, you know, it's it's um, he, you know, Gavin Williamson. Um, he seems to be uh, an education secretary who has been reactive rather than proactive, and of course. You know, I can, I can catch that in the terms of the pandemic. All right, these are un, very unusual circumstances, but he is reactive rather than planned proactively. Yeah. And I, don't, I doubt I would be the only person saying that. 
No, I agree. I mean, there's, there's plenty of people saying that. And uh, even people I've spoken to on my podcast, I mean, it, it seems to be like the general consensus. And you, at your time of need, like your senior leaders, like your deputies and your assistant heads look up to you. You know, As a head, you want to have someone to look up to, knowing that you've got clear structure and clear um, a clear idea of where you're going and what is expected of you. You know, like I mean, I think some of the biggest problems humans have as as a whole is not knowing where you stand with someone, you know, and, and that's quite difficult to take. And I think that the, the the general profession is probably feeling that way and ultimately this is why I'm doing this podcast is to obviously get the teacher's voice out there because at the moment like this is big hoo-ha in the media and within politicians and about the education like industry and it's not really a fair representation of what's actually happening out there is it? No not at all no it's 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 not the, the 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 full accurate view of what is happening out here at all i think i think um the presentation of 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 the profession uh through the media through the government um is not accurate and it's not a positive one either In what way do you, th- do you think that it's not been an accurate sort of view of what you guys have been doing at the moment? Well, I think it. I think it. it um, when we went into the the second lockdown, there was a view that um, you know teachers wanted wanted all the all the schools to shut again and um, to go on to on re- online learning. That that is 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 not accurate at all. Teachers much prefer children being in schools because they understand that's exactly where it, 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 it's, it's best for the pupils. Being in school is absolutely the right thing. And I think there was a view wrongly put out there that actually teachers were, were quite keen to, you know, to, to shut down schools again and go straight on to remote learning. That's not true. You know, we we want the children in the classrooms. That's it's best for the school. It's best for the children. And actually, as as teachers, it's you know it's best for us. It provides us that structure. It, it's it's what we do. You know, um, having an empty school with no one in it, it doesn't does not feel right. Yeah, and after all these. Sorry. Sorry, I don't think that's always that message is always getting get, getting put out there by by the media. Yeah, I agree. And and again, this is why we started, I started this podcast is to to kind of obviously emphasise the, the the amazing job you guys are doing. I mean, after all of these years, like what what is it for you about teaching that still keeps you motivated and still keeps that passion burning, uh, that fire burning to want to be a teacher? The excitement of the children as they come into school and in the classroom. Um, that's what keeps me going. That 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 no day is the same, um, and and just being, you know, I'm blessed at Sherman House, having a fantastic team um, who I work with, who just want the very best for the children that are here in in, in school, and it's it's uh, you know I'm blessed to be able to come into school every day. Um, 
and there's not a day that I don't look forward to coming in. And, and for all of those that are listening, that are sort of looking to get into teaching or currently doing the teacher training year, like what advice would you have for them? Ooh. The advice that I would have for them is, look, when you go into, when you go into teaching, um, just be passionate about your subject because that's the most important thing. If you are passionate, your pupils will pick up on that and they will love you for it. And, you know, I often ask my teachers at the beginning of the, at the, beginning of the, the year, I ask them to think about the teachers that inspired them when they were at school. And that's what I want them to be like. You know, I, had, I was blessed to have some fantastic historians teaching me, which is why history is my subject. Um, so be passionate and be inspiring because it is a fantastic profession that will pay you back in terms of, of seeing the pupils that you teach reach great heights. Yeah. And what's like one of the most amazing success stories you've had of a pupil kind of coming back to you a little bit later on in life and telling you what they're doing? Yeah. Um, so I had um, a pupil who, um, to be fair, uh, struggled, um, uh, found you know, academic life a real struggle. Um, um, he, he, he just did not like being in the classroom. Um, but, you know, he stuck to it and he now is one of the um, chief uh, pilots for BA. Because he found his profession, this is what he wanted to do. And once he found that, at the age of 14, he just really, this is where I want to be. And um, it's been a, it was a great success story because if you'd have asked me when he was 10 or 11, if he'd have ended up flying, you know, Boeing 747s, I said, not, not, not a chance. <laughs> and now he's one of the chief, chief captains for BA. So there you go. Fantastic. I mean, you've given so much, uh, so much insight into obviously your world of teaching and obviously you've given us a lot to take back and, and, and you know, like, uh, just before we do end it, I mean, is there anything that you'd like to finish off on or is there anything that you'd really want to say? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd just say that the profession, you know, it, 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 it has its frustrations. But it, it is a, it's a massively rewarding profession. And I, I don't want people, you know, people are watching the podcast who are you know, newly qualified teachers or, or thinking of entering teaching. You know, don't let those frustrations put you off. You know, if you find the right school with the right staff, you will really, really blossom. It is a great job. And um, I'd be happy to, to talk to anybody who, who would, who's, who's keen on, on coming into the profession. Fantastic. Uh, thank you so much, Mark, for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'll let you carry on with your day now. But I mean, no, it's been an 
absolute pleasure to have you. And it's it's quite nice because obviously you've given us a different insight to to people that have come on before, and um, but obviously you share such similar views. And I just hope people listen. You know, I hope the the government listen or something. You know, like something needs to be done. And I really appreciate the feedback that you've had and and, and the contribution you've made today. So thanks for coming on. Brilliant. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks Take care. Much. Bye. Thank you everyone for watching this week's episode and again thank you mark for coming on guys as usual please give us a like and a subscribe if you enjoyed the week's episode and see you next week thank you